Hey there. Welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Okay, this week on the show, we are going to be talking to best-selling writer George Saunders. He's written many wonderful books, including Lincoln and the Bardot, which he won the Booker Prize for. He's also a MacArthur genius. We're going to talk to George about his creative process and also what it's like for him to write while also teaching writing to his students, as he does at Syracuse University. His latest collection is Liberation Day. Then we are going to chat with award-winning singer and songwriter Samantha Crane. She is from Oklahoma. She plays a style of music that she calls Yalternative. NPR ranked her latest album as one of the 50 best albums of 2020. I can say definitively, this is probably going to be one of the 50 best episodes of Livewire ever. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey there, Luke. How's it going? It's going great. Okay, you know how each week we kick the show off with a little thing we call station location identification examination? Sly, yeah, totally. I love playing this game with you, but I feel like this week is going to be real fish-in-a-barrel territory for you because (laughs) I'm going to tell you about a place in the country where LiveWire is on the radio. You've got to guess where I'm talking about. And I am looking at all of these hints, and I know that you're going to sort of know this immediately. So I'm going to try to start with the most obscure one, okay? Okay. One of the remaining two double-barreled cannons that were produced during the American Civil War resides in this city. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know anything about where cannons were made. I have no no knowledge of that. Okay, well, this one I think is probably going to be a slam dunk. The band R.E.M. was formed in this place in 1980. The double-barreled cannon was made in Athens, Georgia. Yes, indeed, Athens, Georgia, where we are on the radio on W-U-G-A. That's like my old stomps. That's where (laughs) I used to go. I used to go to Athens. It was like 35 minutes from where I grew up and like sit in coffee shops to be cool. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. That was my big move in high school as well. Well, shout out to everybody listening to us in Athens, Georgia. All right, Elena, should we get to the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, author George Saunders. I wanted to avoid the moment where 
in the graveyard, someone goes, hi, we're ghosts. <laughs> we're dead, but we don't know it. So in order to kind of keep the naturalism of the story, you have to withhold a little bit. With music from Samantha Crane. I tweeted at Kelly Clarkson and I said, hey, it's American Indian Heritage Month. You should have me on your show and I'll sing a song in Choctaw. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena. Thanks to everyone for tuning in from all over the country, including Athens, Georgia. We've got a great show in store this week. Of course, we always ask the Livewire listeners a question uh, this week in honor of George Saunders, the great writer and also great writing teacher. We asked the audience, what is the most impactful thing a teacher has ever said to you? We're going to hear those responses coming up. First, though, of course, we've got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Oh, man, I'm going to just tell you right now, I'm going to love every single second of this best news that I'm about to tell you. Okay. It is about one of my favorite things on the planet being used to feed the hungry. So in Greenville, South Carolina, which I believe is home of the radio station where my mother listens to this program. (laughs) We had a very Southern flair to the show this week. Yeah, it's all places that I've lived. Um, Anyway, so in Greenville, uh, in a downtown pavilion, 10,000 sandwiches were made in one day by 200 volunteers for local food banks, shelters, and schools. It took them six hours to make 10,000 sandwiches. But these were special sandwiches because this is Greenville, South Carolina, home to a very special product. These were sandwiches, pimento cheese and bacon sandwiches made with Duke's mayonnaise. Oh, wow. The famous Duke's mayonnaise. So the reason that these were made with Duke's mayonnaise is because Duke's mayonnaise was born in Greenville, South Carolina. And I did not know this about my most beloved condiment. But it was a woman-owned business a hundred years ago because Eugenia Duke, who was a stay-at-home mom, needed to make a little bit of extra money in like 1917. And so she brought her signature sandwiches to nearby Camp Severe, which was like one of the last places that soldiers would stop before being shipped overseas to fight in World War I. And she sold her egg salad, chicken salad, and pimento cheese sandwiches for 10 cents. And they went over like gangbusters. At one point, in order to help the war effort, she also, with her daughter, made uh, 10,000 sandwiches in a day, which is what I think inspired this great act of charity that happened recently. Anyway, because her sandwiches went over so well, she decided to bottle and sell the mayonnaise about four years later, meaning that Duke's uh, mayonnaise just had its centenary. And so she had a woman-owned business in the 1920s. Ah, That is so cool. And she was super charitable. Um, They held this event where they made all these sandwiches in the very pavilion that used to house the Duke's factory in Greenville, South Carolina. And local Meals on Wheels delivered them. So it was this huge effort. The pictures are really, really gorgeous. And in this article that I read, they also include Eugenia's secret famous recipe for pimento cheese, which I will tell you right now. One cup of shredded sharp cheddar one cup of shredded white cheddar, a third of a cup of Duke's mayonnaise, full stop, quarter cup diced tomatoes, quarter cup sweet red peppers, and a quarter cup bacon bits, 
happy birthday. Buy a vat of Dukes and make this pimento cheese. Oh, by the way, this event uh, that happened where they made these sandwiches uh, used 100 gallons of Dukes mayonnaise. Oh my gosh. My first thought hearing that was, I just want to swim in it. (laughs) I'll tell you, like now all I can think about is having a pimento cheese bacon and Dukes mayo sandwich. The best news that I saw this week involved a town in Minnesota, Lake Elmo, where the Washington County Library received a book in the mail recently that was 47 years overdue. (laughs) The person who returned it did so anonymously because they did not want to get in trouble, but they included a note and they said they apologized for having the book for 47 years. They checked this book out in 1975. That was one year before I was born. The book, by the way, was Chilton's Foreign Car Repair Manual. They wrote this letter. In the mid-70s, I was living in Lake Elmo and I was working on an old Mercedes-Benz I took out this book for reference. A few months later, I moved, and apparently the book got packed up with the move. Well, 47 years later, I've found it in a trunk with other interesting things from the 1970s. It's a little overdue, but I thought you might want it back. And then this person said, My apologies to anyone in Lake Elmo who was working on an old (laughs) Mercedes-Benz in the last 47 years. I probably can't afford the overdue charge, but I will send you enough for a new book. So the borrower also included some money to buy a replacement. So just to kind of like wrap the story up, the person who sent this book in, they said that they were worried they wouldn't be able to afford the fines. But like a lot of places, the library in Lake Elmo, Minnesota has gotten rid of overdue fees for libraries, which I didn't even realize this was a thing that was going on, but it just makes a ton of sense. Like, let's not create any impediments to people borrowing books from the library. I remember being a kid and being terrified to go check a book out at the Green Lake Public Library because I knew I owed them money for an Encyclopedia Brown book or two that I hadn't brought back. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that an Encyclopedia Brown, the case of the overdue book? I think it is. (laughs) Yes. I think Bugs Meanie and the Tigers... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Probably were up to no good involving an overdue library. That book. villain bugs meanie. That's right. All right. Anyway, the Lake Elmo Library getting its full collection back is the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. He's one of our favorites. And it's got to be one of the few people who was a one-time Chicago roofer. Beverly Hills doorman, and also winner of a MacArthur Genius Award. He's written 11 books. The novel Lincoln in the Bardot, which he wrote, won the Booker Prize. Time calls his latest collection of stories Liberation Day, an exquisite work from a writer whose reach is galactic. Take a listen to this. It's our interview with George Saunders, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Hey, George, welcome back to the show. Nice to be here. Um, This book is a really amazing Liberation Day. I'm curious, did you know you were writing a book uh, at the time, or were you just writing short stories? It's kind of the same for me. Like, I I just, uh, the default mode is writing stories. That's what I always do. So then you start seeing them sort of add up, and like, oh, that's that's 80 pages. That's almost a book, you know. (laughs) (laughs) If I just use a bigger font, we're pretty much there. (laughs) Like the Reader's Print, Reader's Digest large print. Well, or the condensed books. Remember the Reader's Digest condensed books? Yeah, Yeah. those were pathetic. What was that about? (laughs) 
there are like whole sections of the Count of Monte Cristo I don't even know about because I read the they condensed yeah, yeah. book version. I know it's about a sandwich. And that thing um, where Scrooge, where <laughs> <laughs> and that whole book where Scrooge is only nice. That was a. That was a <laughs> um, I'm always very curious about a writer's process, and I know you probably get asked about this a lot. But do you have an idea of like, hey, what if these people were being kept as like human machinery in order to? <laughs> that's the only idea I have, actually. That, that's, that's <laughs> Thank God it made it into the book. No, like, do you, it, ha- do you have an idea of some very sort of interesting scenario, and then you kind of work out from there? No, it's really more uh, an attempt to not have any ideas. Like, if I have a thematic idea, then I just do that. You know, and there's this thing I quote from Einstein all the time. It's no worthy problem is ever solved on the plane of its original conception. So if you just do what you set out to do, it's a buzzkill. It's that that's no fun. And the reader feels like she's just kind of the passive victim of your big idea. Whereas if, it's like being on a date, ladies. Yeah. You know? but, I believe that's, but, I believe that's but, called my first two marriages. Yeah. <laughs> But if you can get, as a writer, if you can get yourself a little bit interested and confused, which I usually do just by making up some crazy voice, and I don't even know where it's coming from, I'm just trying to do it for two or three pages, then at some point you go, okay, why is this person talking so weird, which then equals world building. So the whole thing to me is to be a little bit happily, openly confused then the reader kind of is like, well, he seems confused. It's like when you're on a, a bus being driven by a drunk, you know, like, oh, everybody's... <laughs> Are we okay? You know, but... Do you feel like that's a relatable experience? <laughs> oh, yeah, for me. <laughs> but the whole thing is, is if, I, if I, as a writer, am uh, keeping the reader in mind by not being too sure of what I'm doing and, and sort of admitting over my shoulder, like, I'm a little lost right now, but bear with me then I th- the idea is that the reader at least feels involved. So there's like an intimate communication going on, and then you just go where the story goes for like four years. <laughs> <laughs> Does that get harder uh, and harder the more often you land on a short story that's successful, right? Like when you're on your 50th successful short yeah. story to, to actually shake yourself up? Or it, actually- it is, because you, know, you find out, especially if you're me, that there's a very narrow wedge of talent, actually, that's not infinite. Like, some, no, some writers can write anything. I'm not one of those. So you end up kind of like trying to find a, a square centimeter you haven't done before. Or sometimes you'll have a, a story that is actually fairly similar to one you've written before. And then the game is, okay, I, I have to find a new, a new valence. I have to find another twist. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a challenge for sure. Yeah. Do you have a sort of internal clock or something that you're following as to when it's time to start revealing in the story some of because I, I have sometimes have the experience reading your stories and now I know it's by design where I have a no idea what's going on at right. first. <laughs> Why are these people saying this? Are these people? What is happening? Right, right. And then like right as I'm about to like uh, go to the next chapter, something just turns, a little piece of information is revealed and now I'm like really in right. Invested. How, how do you know when to do that? In the it's, it's really through revision. And so I always talk about this imaginary meter in your head as a writer. So you, this is positive, this is negative. So as you're rereading your work, you're kind of, you're reading it, trying to be a first-time reader, and you're watching that meter, and you're just seeing, well, would I still be into this? You know, is this guy <laughs> being too smart for his own good? Are there too many jokes? Uh, is, is the reader pleasurably lost or just getting pissed off you know that you know and then and then uh, as you're going through it you, if you feel like yeah I'm being a little bit too obtuse you drop in a little clue you know so the whole thing for me is mostly about 
Uh, for example, Lincoln and the Bartle. A lot of people, I, I had this experience when I was touring that book. I say, how many people made it past page 30? And about half the room would raise their hand, you know. So, so it's, it's got a kind of a, a difficult beginning. But that was because I, I, I wanted to avoid the moment where in the graveyard someone goes, hi, we're ghosts. <laughs> we're dead, but we don't know it, you know. I, that, that's a, a violation of the contract, you know, because they don't know that. So in order to kind of keep the naturalism of the story, you have to withhold a little bit. Uh, but again, not too much. So it's kind of like, like um, I guess in high school, that titration, you know, like you read it through one time and you're keeping the reader out. Okay, you got to change that. And it's over and over again, many, many iterations. Yeah. We need to take a very quick break here on Livewire. Uh, we were talking to George Saunders. His uh, new collection of short stories is Liberation Day. We're here as part of the Portland Book Festival, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of I'm probably a 501c3 they don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping and it's really better that way yes. point is we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members and we would love it if you could join us in that right now plus there are all kinds of sweet perks including uh special discounted tickets to live recordings on-air shout outs exclusive content uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LivewireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use Livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. Uh, we're talking to George Saunders, this week part of the Portland Book Festival. Um, your book, Lincoln and the Bardo, uh, deals with people that are kind of in between life and death or, or post-death and before whatever else happens. Mm. There are characters in this book, Liberation Day, that are also in that state for various degrees of time. Do you think about death a lot, like, as a person? Is it a big topic for you oh, in yeah. your normal oh, life? Oh, yeah, every day. No, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I do. Even as a kid, I was kind of, kind of death-obsessed somehow. But I think it, only because it's just weird, you know, mm-hmm. that you get up, you put on a tie. This is a tie and a corpse. That's weird, you know? So, so the idea that we have in this life, <laughs> this li- <laughs> uh, in this life you have this incredible urge to love and be loved. That's the, that's the strongest thing. And then you realize everything that you love is conditional. So, so how do you, you know, live a functional life where everything tells you to love and that's natural, and at the same time everything is going to go away, you know? So it's, to me it seems like this, the real question of any literature is how do you make a functional life out of that dichotomy you know uh so yeah it's cheerful certainly it's cheerful (laughs) you teach uh this writing program at syracuse that's uh quite revered and uh you know only lets in a, a kind of short list of students every year um i'm curious you teach storytelling there like is it sometimes stressful for you to write stories and have those students read because you're the person at the mm-hmm. front of the class going, like, this is how you do it. Right. And now you're, like, you're teaching trumpet, and then all of a sudden you're like, and now here's how it should sound. Yeah. It's actually, it's sort of the opposite. They, they, um, they are so good. We, we get 700 applications, and we pick six people. So, yeah, so they're amazing. But it's kind of a fountain of youth, because if you ever, you know, as one tends to do as you get older, get a little cynical, you know, it's all downhill after a fog hat, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> But, but seriously, then you get in, in, in a room with these six young people, and you see the talent is eternal. It, it never goes away. It changes flavor, of course. But, um, so it's really kind of an anti-cynicism recipe to sit down with them and uh, realize that you have to really bring it every time in, in, your, in the stories that you teach and hopefully in your own work. So it's been, it's been really a lovely life for, of teaching. But, I mean, after you've told them these are the principles... Of, of, of good storytelling and this is how you write and then you write a thing and then it's out in the world and they're reading it. Do you ever feel like you have a hard time living up to what you're teaching in the class? I think they don't read them. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, I, I, I don't hear a lot about it. And, you know, but, but, yeah. No, and also, but honestly, you know, one of the best things that ever happened when I was a student is one of our teachers got a kind of a bad review in the Times and we were all very nervous about it. And then we went in the class and he just said, let's talk about this. You know, fearless. And uh, he said, there's some merit in this. Uh, some of this argument isn't coherent. Some of it is. And he said, you know what I'm going to do tomorrow? I'm going to write another book, you know. Huh. So the fact that he would be so honest with us and open up like that was really good. And it made us realize that, you know, you're theoretically doing it for something more than reviews. You're doing it for the long, the long game. You're doing it to find something in yourself. So that was really inspiring, you know. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're talking to George Saunders here on Livewire, this week part of the Portland Book Festival. George's latest book is Liberation Day. Um, I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm unusually obsessed with this detail of your life, which is that you graduated from the Colorado School of Mines <laughs> and that you lived like a, a pretty substantial adult life that wasn't as a writer before you got into writing. Mm. I think that really grounds a lot of the stuff that you do, or maybe just because I grew up in kind of a, like a blue-collar background, I just mm. like associate with that. I'm wondering, though, now that you are mostly in the classroom and are mostly coming to 
book conferences and interviews and doing Stephen Colbert next week. Like, mm-hmm. is it hard for you to stay connected to whatever it was about your early life that helped you really know what it's like for normal people? I, maybe a little, but I think a lot of that stuff, if, if, it, if it hits you early, it stays in the DNA a little bit. So I, I think, uh, yeah, it's kind of, I, I remember working at the slaughterhouse, you know, and, and um, getting up in the morning and your hands would be frozen shut, you know, for, and I was 25 or something and hands are shut and you have to run hot water on them to open them up, you know, so that kind of stuff, you kind of, and I still flinch whenever you use a credit card, <laughs> like, you know, this, you know, oh, it worked, you know, oh. like that. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I do, but I think too that, you know, in a certain way, okay, so if you're lucky enough as I've been to maybe not have to worry so much about that, then uh, the habit of worry can be put to good use, which is to say life in general is full of hard knocks and suffering. People, people, it's like, as Tolstoy said, it's hard down here, brother, you know? So I think once you've had a taste of that in your own life, you can kind of look up and, and see, yeah, you know, it's never easy here. And the last few years, so difficult, you know? So then fiction, um, at least as I understand it, can be a way of just reaching out to someone and saying, I know it's hard. Or I, if it's not hard now, I know it's going to get hard. We're all together, you know, that kind of thing. But also that beautiful process of starting a story, uh, let's say in my stories often, the character at the beginning is kind of played for a bit of a joke. There's often a little first sections where the reader and I are kind of going, look at that weirdo. That's funny, you know. Huh, you know somebody like that. Yeah, I know. And then um, but because the story can't stay static, I have to go back in the second beat and look at her again. And I have to say to her basically, is there anything you'd like to tell me about yourself? And they always do. You know, the characters do in revision. So then suddenly you have somebody that you maybe made a little bit of fun of and then you find out something that's going badly for her. Your sympathy gets engaged. You see that your first facile opinion was a little bit too easy. Mm-hmm. And this goes on and on. So by the end of it, ideally, the reader and writer together have gone through this process of uh, being shorn of too easy judgment. Mm-hmm. You know? And so for like 10 seconds at the end of the story, you're like, oh, God, I could be that open-minded always or that affectionate always. Then, of course, you go back to normal. But in that sense, it's, it's good. <laughs> But in that sense, it's kind of sacramental because you go, oh, I remember that I had a glimpse of a better version of me at the end of that Chekhov story. You know, yeah. you could get there again, maybe. I got a text um, this week from a friend of mine who hosts the show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Peter, who inter- Peter Segel, who interviewed you at the Chicago Humanities Festival. Mm. And he sent me all the questions that he didn't get to <laughs> with you. And this is one of them, but I want to preface it by saying this was his question. Oh, no. <laughs> Do you think there is something wrong with ending a story in a happy way? No, no. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think he, I think he just chickened out. I think he, yeah. no, no, there isn't. But but only if it's earned. You know, if the story, you know, you you you're revising it and you're leaving all kinds of hints about the reality of the story. If you get to the end and you have to falsify to make it happy, that's not happy. That's the worst kind of darkness. That's, that's the Hollywood movie, you know, where everything goes well in spite of what the preceding three hours or two hours said. So to me, the happy story is the one that's true to itself uh, and the one where the reader and writer get to put their heads together and say, let's look at this made-up person and look at, let's just be honest about it. Let, let's bring, both bring our experience. Let's look at it honestly. Then even if it's a, you know, quote-unquote sad ending, you're still uplifted by that, by that community. I mean, Flannery O'Connor, she doesn't have a lot of, like, lottery wins at the end of her stories, you know. <laughs> but, but every time I read her, I feel more alive. I feel more realistic. I feel actually more fond of people, even ones that I might not have liked before. So um, 
But I'll work on it. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try to come again. Talk to Peter. No, I think in this book, there's a story called Sparrow that I think has a very happy ending in this book. Yeah. You know, and yeah. No, that actually So does. that's one. That's it was, yeah. and you, maybe because it's tonally a little different than the other mm-hmm. pieces in the book, I've never been rooting harder for two people at a grocery store to find love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, truly. So there yeah. you go. Yeah. A lot of this, this latest book, Liberation Day, feels to me like it's written from the other side of the sort of collapse of life as we know it here. Um, And I'm wondering if you feel like that is inevitable. Uh, I wanted to kind of wrap things up on sort of a softball. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, eventually it's inevitable, but I don't think it's, no, I actually think, you know, people who still believe in uh, hope and love and equality and all the things that the country is supposed to be about, we have a lot of energy. And a system that is based on fear and uh, demonizing the other and hopelessness, that, that system won't last. So I think whatever happens, we're going to be okay because there's a lot of people in this country uh, who, who believe in it what, as it's supposed to be. So it might be uncomfortable, and it's going to be, I'm sure it's going to spin, could spin out of control in ways we don't see. But I think, I think you know, for, um, as a lifetime progressive, somewhat left of Gandhi, um, <laughs> I, I think it's an important moment for people who feel that way to not to despair. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and to say, no, we, we know what the country is about, and it's our country too, and we're going to stand up for it. Yeah. You know? yeah. You are listening to Livewire from PRX. We're here talking to George Saunders about his latest book, Liberation Day. Um, as we've already discussed, along with being a celebrated writer, you're also a celebrated uh, teacher of writing at Syracuse University. And as it happens, our announcer, Elena Passarello, is also a professor of creative writing. And, um, well, in fact, a lot of your MFA students are here with us. Yay! You made it. Good, good, good. They all get A's. Yay! <laughs> and I understand that they have submitted some actual questions for George Saunders. Yes. So we've got about five of these questions in a jar here. And we're going to oh, basically... Can I tell you what I was going to call it? Yeah. The MFA AMA. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Right? Get it? We call this exercise the MFA AMA. Oh, it doesn't go with the sting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how this is going to work, George, is we'll have you select a question from the Jar of Truth. These are written by actual MFA students from, of Elena Passarello's. Elena will read you the question, and then you will give us your best answer. So if you want to hand it to Elena, she will read it to you. Oh, okay. So this is from Jonas, second year fiction writer, good friend of the show. What is the best non-writing activity that you can do to become a better writer? Reading. Reading. Reading, really. No, I mean, really, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're always, I tell my students, you have to imagine you have this silo over your head and you're putting all kinds of stuff in the Russian stories, analysis of stories, your life, everything. And then you trust that all that stuff is going to work its way into your artistic body. And at a, some moment of intuition, it's going to help you. It's not that you're consciously doing it, but it just makes you a richer, fuller person. Yeah. I was really hoping you were going to say drinking. Yeah. Uh, but, but we'll take this. We'll take that as well. That's a pretty good one. Uh, I would be Hemingway if that were the solution. 
All right, George, can you please select another question yeah. oh, from yeah. the MFA AMA project? <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. Oh, how about that one? Okay, so this is from Oceline, first-year fiction student. How do you know if a story idea is worthwhile? How long does it take until you know? Oh, this is several questions. What happens to the rejects? <laughs> I, I hear it like Do they ever or often show up again in other forms? Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great writerly question. I think yeah, my, my assumption is you, if, if it comes to you, uh, without a lot of attachment and concepts and stuff, then and you feel interested in it, then it's a good idea. And then you got to wait. You know, you got to really wait for mm-hmm. it to do that thing where it comes out of the plane of its original conception. And so that's a kind of an act of faith. But what it means is, as you're working along, if you get locked up, that's your story saying to you, "You're underestimating me." Huh. You know. And then you say, "What? What do you mean, little story?" And it, it says, "You think I'm? You think you know what I'm about?" <laughs> I don't mean to hurt your feelings. Well, you are hurting my feelings. And, and then, but but you waited, you wait, you waited out, and uh, and then in time it'll start to lead you. You know. So I think for me, it's you pretty much just assume it's a good idea, and that anything that looks like an obstruction, you know, or a goiter or a mistake, <laughs> is actually the story's way of leading you to higher ground. You know. That's, Have you ever invented like a really great character and then not been able to figure out where to put them for more than? A month or yeah. more than... No, it happened in this book. There was a, a story called 10th of December, and there was a mother character in there. And I wrote the scene. It was pretty funny. And it just wasn't needed. So, with, you know, it, with great pain, I plucked it out and put it in a file. And then I just left it there. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I, I used it to make that mama bold action. You know, and she and it's funny because that woman didn't want to be in that story. Huh. It's like I don't belong in here. I don't care about this one. <laughs> then you take you take her out, and it's almost like a, a flower that gets in the right pot. She's like, "Oh, this is more like it." Now let me tell you the story I want to tell you. You know, huh. so yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, okay, a couple more uh, questions, please, from the jar of truth. Yep. While we have you, also yes. this does count as credit at Syracuse University yeah. in yeah. the <laughs> MFA program to everyone okay. here at the Alberta Rose Theater. Okay, how about this one from nonfiction MFA student Emily? In an interview, see the nonfiction writer does the research. Yeah. <laughs> in an interview, you said the best writing advice you ever received was from Tobias Wolf, who said, "Don't lose the magic." Great. How do we keep the magic? Yeah, well, I, yeah. Well, totally. I, I was um, I'd been a funny writer when I came to Syracuse, and then I got let's say tight below the waist. I didn't want to use a bad word on your radio show, but, I, <laughs> but things down there were suddenly stiff. And uh, no, that's not, that's not anything. <laughs> Still that's, a funny writer. <laughs> yeah, no. That's a, that just sounds like I'm bragging. Yeah, some I, of I, should, us, I should have said tight ass. Some of us are dealing the with the opposite problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's something okay. about being on the radio. No, so I, I become very uh, serious and no, no humor. And so I, I saw Toby at a party, and I said, I just want you to know, thanks for letting me in, but from now on, this funny stuff, no more. It's going to be real literature. Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me over his glass and went, well, good, just don't lose the magic. And I was like, to myself, why would I do that? Of course not. And then I went <laughs> off for six years and just kept writing serious sort of Hemingway imitations. And uh, so then when I finally was, you know, became funny again, I, that, that advice just flashed in my mind, like, of course, you idiot, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think what I tell my students is the magic just means you're writing in a way about which you have strong opinions. Mm-hmm. Not, not strong intellectual opinions, but visceral opinions. Like, I always knew what it was like to be funny and when it wasn't. I always used funny in my life to get in, to get out of trouble or uh-huh. whatever. Uh, I had a first girlfriend who broke up with me because I told too many jokes. <laughs> And then I told a joke without even, you know, so she continued to break up with me. Uh, 
But, but so then to say, but then when I started writing funny, I always knew, you know, I had a strong opinion. So I think if, if a student writes, and then when she rereads her work, she has really strong visceral opinions about it, she's probably on the right track. It sounds like you have to, like, just constantly know yourself in some kind of way as you grow and change. And you, it, it's not even like you have to keep your writing sharp. Of course, that's true. But yeah. you have to keep your, like, your self-awareness or yourself... Is that, is that yeah. too much to No, ask? I think that's right. I think, well, I mean, that's kind of, I think the mindset you're in when you're revising is you're just saying, would I like this if I hadn't read it before? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it exciting? Does it, does it thrill me? Uh, and I think that since so much of writing is actually reacting to what you've already done, you can kind of do that. You don't have to have a big thought about it. You can just read it and see what you feel like doing. Mm-hmm. And I think the feel like, is, it, that phrase is really important. You know, it should be fun. If, if writing isn't fun, I don't think it's, even if it's very serious, it should still be fun to do it. And some, otherwise, how do you know, you know, what's the guidance? How do you know where to go? And know? even when you're writing really dark, there's still an element of fun that's a part of it. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, you know, it, like no actual humans are harmed. You know, <laughs> you know I mean, you know, it's just, they're just symbols, you know. And, uh, and really, you're saying, okay, what if, you know, part of a house fell on cliff and crushed him? Well, there's no cliff, so it's all right, you know. But then you can say, yeah, okay, let's start with that. And then we're going to see you know, what Cliff is like there on the ground, and we're going to see by association what human beings are like under duress, you know. So it's all kind of a, uh, a game, really, you know. Mm. Yeah. George Saunders, everyone, right here on LiveWire. That was George Saunders, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, as part of the Portland Book Festival. And George's new collection of short stories, Liberation Day, is out now. Hey, special thanks this week to Matthew Smedley of Melbourne, Australia. Matthew is part of the Livewire member community and has been generously supporting the show with a donation each month, which is a big deal because it's how we were able to keep doing Livewire. So thank you, Matthew, for keeping the show going. This is Livewire Radio. As we do each week, we ask the listeners a question because we have been talking to George Saunders, who is also a great teacher of writing, and also because Elena Passarello is a great teacher of writing. We wanted to find out what the most impactful thing a teacher has ever said to our listener. Folks have been sending in those responses. Elena has been collecting them up. What do you see it? Ellie says, my second grade teacher once said, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. It really makes you think... Certainly stuck with her. I was perpetually in trouble in school, which will come as no surprise to the listeners. And I used to get detention all the time. And I would sit in third grade class during recess and I would stare at my teacher, Mrs. Wharton, and she would eat an apple slowly and then she would consume the entire core while maintaining unbroken eye contact with me. That wasn't so much (laughs) verbal, but it really stuck with me. That was your stupid prize for playing stupid games. That was, exactly. Uh, what's something else memorable a teacher said to one of our listeners? Here's a wonderful one from Lisa. Lisa says, at my eighth grade graduation, my teacher told me he wanted an invitation to my college graduation, and I never forgot that. That's so important, I think, for a lot of students to be told that someone sees the future for them. Like it's, I think a lot of people take it for granted because they've had adults their entire life telling them about their future. But sometimes school is the place where, where adults help students really visualize a longer path to bigger goals. Goosebumps all over just reading that one. 
Absolutely. You know, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I don't think it even occurred to me. And I had a, an English teacher at Nathan Hale High School who said, hey, you should go to college. And I, <laughs> I think that was part of why I actually did it. So yeah, it's amazing the impact one adult kind of looking out for you can really have. Yeah, it's a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, what's another piece of advice that a teacher gave one of our listeners? This is a touching story from Kathleen. Kathleen says, the most impactful thing a teacher ever told me was that I was the most social person she'd ever met because she had a student who we'll call David who ate his lunch in her room alone every day, but I had her class after lunch, so I'd always come in and say hi to David and he would light up. She complimented me and said there are probably days when I am the only person who talks to David all day to say his name. And it's a lesson I've always carried with me that maybe being uncool, which is very important to high schoolers, was worth it if it meant making someone feel that they belong. Wow. I really wish we could all go back to high school as like 40-year-olds because Mm -hmm. I feel like you just become such a more aware person, probably a more, at least I'm a much more, I think, empathetic person at my age. I would be going around the school talking to all of the Davids if I knew then what I know now about sort of how humans are, you know? And what mattered. I think sometimes in high school, like the wrong things or the things that don't actually matter, matter, but that kind of stuff, that matters. Well, shout out to all the teachers who got mentioned today for saying really important stuff to their students. Uh, We really appreciate what you all are doing out there. And we appreciate everyone who sent in their responses to the question. Thank you. You are listening to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. Right over there is Elena Passarello. Okay, our musical guest this week is a two-time Native American Music Award winner. Her genre-spanning discography, uh, which she likes to refer to as the alternative, has been critically acclaimed by the likes of Rolling Stone, Spin, The Guardian, and NPR, who ranks her latest album, A Small Death, as one of the 50 best albums of 2020. Her latest EP is called I guess we live here now. Take a listen to Samantha Crane here on Livewire. We were we were hearing reports before the show. They were like Samantha Crane's sound check was unbelievable. Oh, that's nice. One hundred percent delivered on that. It's also really nice to have you here in person. We had you on the show before, but it was in the pandemic, and so it was kind of virtual. If I remember right, were you at the airport? On your way to a show that we were going to have that got canceled or... Oh, yeah, I was actually. (laughs) I I forgot about that. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I I was in London and they were like, they're closing the borders, so you should go back to the States. And so I did. I, I was trying to get here yeah. to do the show. I forgot that that was the beginning of that the That was pan- us. I'm yeah. glad you forgot. So that you was you guys. You did yeah, that. Yeah, we canceled no. like the day you were going to fly here. Um, I understand that you played the Kennedy Center recently and you sang in Choctaw? Yeah, so I started writing songs in Choctaw a few years ago um, and I did perform one of those songs at the Kennedy Center. I think I just started doing it because you know I grew up hearing the language in powwow songs or in sort of traditional songs in terms of like uh, Christian hymns that had been like translated to Choctaw or something like that. But I, I think I was just sort of thinking, you know, this is like a living, breathing language. Like there's people that still speak it. I speak it. Um, there's like young indigenous people that want to utilize the language in their own creation. And so... If we are a modern contemporary people, why not make 
like I'm a songwriter, I'm Choctaw, so this is sort of my job, right? Like yeah. make modern contemporary songs with modern contemporary thoughts and feelings in use the language. So it's a slow process for me because it's like a second language, but um, I am trying to like get at least one song on every album from, from now on. Wow. <laughs> and we're, you're trying to get, is it Kelly Clarkson? Well, you, you're on Twitter right <laughs> now. That was right a now. joke. I was drunk the other night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was ready to mobilize the live wire listening audience to make this no, I, happen. <laughs> You tweeted at Kelly Clarkson saying you want to perform a, a song in Choctaw on her show because it's Indigenous Peoples Month. I did, yeah. It's American Indian Heritage Month. Okay. And I was watching Love is Blind the other night. And <laughs> <laughs> I had had, like, a bottle of wine, kind of. <laughs> and um, I saw, like, a commercial for, like, the Kelly Clarkson show for some reason. I don't know. Or maybe I was just, like, doing the phone mm -hmm. doom scroll or something. And I was like, I've got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good idea. I think we should try to make it happen. So yeah, I did. I tweeted at Kelly Clarkson and I said, hey, it's American Indian Heritage Month. You should have me on your show and I'll sing a song in Choctaw. And I, and I think I only got like five retweets. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to retweet it right now, which should get that up to like seven, eight. Yeah. <laughs> This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We are listening to our conversation with the musician Samantha Crane. Now, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We are going to be back with some music from Samantha that is absolutely going to blow your mind. So stick around. More Livewire in a moment. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are listening to a conversation we had with the singer and songwriter Samantha Crane at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Check it out. I know that you've had some music featured on what I think is one of the coolest. It's not even new because they're going to season three, but Reservation Dogs, yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. which is shot in Oklahoma where you're from. That show is so good. It's so amazing. And like the amount of pride that people from Oklahoma have for it, especially if you're like native and from Oklahoma, it's like a double. And Sterling Harjo, the creator and sort of showrunner for the show with Taika, Sterling's like one of my best friends. We've been working together since I was like 18, basically. So uh, I've had music like in a few of his films and he made like early music videos for me and all this. So it's like so amazing to see him take all of these ideas that I've seen him have over the past like 15 years and finally get like the TV show to put all of the good ideas in it. Um, and then, yeah, luckily I'm getting to do some music for it too. So 
yeah, the show is so good. Obviously, it's a television show, so things are played for, to, everything is, is heightened, because that's how it works yeah. on TV. Do you feel that that is, on some level, a fairly accurate representation of, of your experience being Native American in Oklahoma? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, obviously, that show is shot a bit more in like a... Uh, like a slightly, like you said, yeah. slightly heightened. Like you didn't heightened. steal a flaming hot Cheetos truck. No, I did with not. With your friends no. <laughs> to sell at a scrapyard. I did not, but um, <laughs> there are there are definitely like elements of the storylines of those people that match up with my life or with people in my family or friends of mine, and I think beyond that, just the the humor of it is very like location specific and also very. Um, like culturally specific too, which is, that's what's so funny about it to me is that people think it's funny outside of like Oklahoma and uh -huh. native communities in Oklahoma because I just thought it was so like culturally specific to us. Like super inside baseball. Yeah, I yeah. like everything. I'm just like, oh, it's an inside joke. You wouldn't get it. And then they're laughing. So yeah. I didn't know that. Somebody <laughs> saying go get white Dave is always funny. <laughs> I think in any context. Yes, yes, huh. yes. Um, okay, can we hear a song? I'm going to play a song called Joey, which is actually, I think it's on the pilot episode of okay. Reservation Dogs. If it's not the pilot episode, it's the second episode. Okay. So it kind of fits with this. Good transition. I didn't even plan this. Oh, this is serendipity. <laughs> Come around and see me Got plenty of room now that I live alone Last time I saw you, you were walking in the meadow Your face was sweaty and your outfit was gone Spill your wine like you used to. I know it's different, but we'll figure it out. Sometimes I feel like my memories never happened. Could you remind me, take me back for a night? I am a revolving door. 
nails and keeps my head screwed on tight. But I feel it for Ray, cause we were never for staying. So narrow, so straight, and unwilling to fight. Samantha Crane, right here on Livewire. Her latest EP, I Guess We Live Here Now, is available now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. Uh, We'll be talking to writer and podcaster Nora McInerney about her latest book, Bad Vibes Only. It's a collection of essays that challenges uh, what Nora calls society's oppressive optimism, sort of live, laugh, loveification of everything. Then we're also going to talk to author and music entrepreneur Nabil Ayers about his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, which explores his relationship with his father, the musician Roy Ayers. Also, we're going to hear music from the very talented Madison Cunningham. And as always, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? We want to know what small thing are you too hard on yourself about? I know the grammar of that is killing you as an English professor, but just <laughs> we're just going to go with it. If you want to tell us about a small thing that you are too hard on yourself about, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, George Saunders and Samantha Crane. Also, special thanks to the Portland Book Festival. 
Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. And Julian McElmurray is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Matthew Smedley of Melbourne, Australia. G'day, Matthew, and also apologies for that very tired <laughs> joke. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.